Coming up today, Morgan explores a plan to tackle deadly heat waves through afternoon naps, and Grace investigates the technology hoping to tap into your brain. You're listening to The Wide Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business, and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me this week are Morgan Mika. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Grace Brown. Hello. This was the week when a farmer in Australia discovered a mysterious metal object in his field, which turned out to be a chunk of debris from a SpaceX capsule. Incidents like these will become more common as the number of rockets sent into space increases. This was also the week when Spain announced measures it hopes will cut the country's gas consumption by 7% ahead of an expected winter energy crunch caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. New rules dictate that air conditioning can now not be lower than 27 degrees, while heating cannot be higher than 19 degrees. It was also the week when tensions between China and the USA reached new heights. China started conducting military exercises following a visit to Taiwan by Speaker of the US House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. And finally, it was the week when, in a wild experiment, researchers from Yale University were able to restart circulation and other cellular functions in the vital organs of pigs, such as you know the heart and the brain, after the pigs have been dead for an hour. The research puts into question our current definition of what death actually is. Morgan, I want to come back to you and this air conditioning and heating rule. How are they going to enforce this? I'm not sure how they're going to enforce it. I know that there's a series of other rules. So kind of shops have to have their lights turned off after 10pm. So I, I feel like maybe there'll be a way to report it. But I think it just shows how kind of Europe is... Uh, freaking out ahead of this winter and how it's going to be quite tough for lots of different countries. We had some stories in the UK this week about a hose pipe ban in certain counties and, and plans to basically spy on your neighbours. So if you see them, you know, filling up their paddling pool or watering their garden, you can dob them into the authorities. So maybe it'll be similar in Spain, where if your neighbour looks suspiciously cool as you walk past his house, you can you can call the police and they'll, they'll come around and, and drag him away. You have to sweat in front of your neighbours to show you're not having uh, too good a time with your air conditioning. Exactly, exactly. All right, let's move to our fun facts. Matt Burgess, outstanding fact from you this week. Thank you. It's, I mean, I can take no credit for that, but I'll get to that in a second. So this week I learned how many Baby Bell cheeses you would need to eat to build a house using sort of like compressed balls of the red wax from the outside of the cheese. Um, and if you would like to know the answer, it is 908, no, 908,000 Baby Bells. There is some actual science behind this-ish as well. So this comes from Twitter user at MinkBazink, uh, who claims um, to be a machine learning engineer at Google. And I've got no reason to doubt that claim, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but they calculated the amount of baby bells that were needed. Um, so homes uh, that are built out of wood use a measurement called board feet to measure how much wood is needed. Um, and they say that a 1,000 square foot house needs around... Uh, uh, 6,300 board feet of material. So they essentially worked out how much baby well wax there is from one single baby bell um, in board feet. And if you condense like all of the wax into a tiny ball, uh, it's 0.00694 board feet. And then simply uh, to work out how much you would need to build a house, you just need to do the maths. And that's how you get to 908,000 baby bells. 
you say you had no reason to doubt this person's claim that they're a machine learning engineer at Google, but the fact that they did a Twitter thread about how many baby bells you would need to build a house perhaps throws some doubt on that claim. Grace? Um, I've actually never had a baby bell. I only learned recently that the red stuff, the wax, isn't edible. I thought you could eat that. It looks so good. I think you can eat it. I don't think you'd want to eat it again a second time. Okay. Actually, we should say, like, I'm not sure if baby bells are a global phenomenon. Oh. Like, do they have them elsewhere? Uh, maybe we're just talking about something and people have no idea what we're talking about. So it's like a cheese, like a, a round, small cheese about, I don't know, the size of a golf ball, but it's flattened and then it's covered in a red wax if you don't know what we're talking about <laughs> maybe it's a peculiarly english or, or european uh, delicacy i don't know uh all right morgan you've also got a fact for us this week uh yeah so this week i learned that pop legend jennifer lopez is responsible for the birth of google image search so this happened because you may or may not know that in 2000, J-Lo wore a green low-cut dress to the Grammys that you could say attracted quite a lot of attention online. And Google's former CEO, Eric Schmidt, wrote later that that moment inspired a lot of soul-searching at Google. So at the time, J-Lo's dress was the most popular search query the company had ever seen. But Google didn't really have a way of giving the people what they want. They didn't have a function that showed people lots of images around a certain search term. So according to Schmidt in an essay he wrote in 2015, that was the moment that Google image search was born. So I feel like we talk about J-Lo breaking the internet <laughs> quite a lot, but did she actually fix the internet? God, I really miss the days when Google engineers actually used to build stuff rather than posting nonsense Twitter threads about cheese-based construction work. <laughs> All right, let's move to our first story this week. Matt Burgess, it's about the weather. It is. So throughout June and July and even the start of August, much of Europe and also in parts of America, uh, there have been extreme uh, heat waves. Across parts of Europe, there have been wildfires, evacuations and heat-related deaths. In France and the UK, several heat records were set. Um, and a new heat wave is happening in France right now. The highest temperature recorded across Europe uh, was 47 degrees in parts of Portugal. And during this time, people have still been at work, going to work, despite the extreme temperatures. Morgan, this week you've been looking into how people have been coping with the heat waves. Yeah, and the answer to how people are coping depends very much on the type of work you do. So if you're an office worker, you might barely notice that the air conditioning is working harder than usual. But if your work takes place outside, these heat waves can be really tough. So I spoke to unions representing construction workers who said that when temperatures rise, builders aren't only at risk of heat stroke or skin cancer if they're in the sun a lot, but the heat actually makes accidents much more likely as people feel drowsy or lethargic. The materials they handle also get really hot. So roof tiles, for example, can get as, as hot as 80 degrees. And in Spain, especially, the heat in mid-July proved literally deadly. So the public health research body, the Carlos III Health Institute, linked more than 500 deaths that took place between July 10th and July 16th to high temperatures. And many of those were at work. So one really sad case was the story of Jose Antonio Gonzalez. He was a 60-year-old street cleaner who collapsed after starting his shift at the middle of the day at 2.30pm. So this this is making workers across Europe think kind of if this is the future, if we're going to see more and more heat waves as a result of climate change, do the rhythms of our day still make sense? So should people be working at all during these core hours? So in the middle of the day anymore, or do we need to kind of totally rethink? 
And part of the the story that you're talking about and have been reporting this week has been focusing on sort of where these uh, suggestions or questions are are coming from. And when we've seen, uh, for instance, in the UK, we've seen uh, record uh, temperatures here and infrastructure and and many parts of society struggling to cope with uh, the extreme heat temperatures. So in these types of discussions about when people should be working, like where whereabouts are we seeing them coming from across Europe? Yeah, so to me, this was the really interesting part of the story. So obviously, Southern Europe have have been wrestling with working in the heat for a while. But the last few years have sparked a surge of interest in alternative working patterns from Northern European countries as well. So the UK Union TUC is calling for more flexible working hours. A construction union in Germany is campaigning for longer lunch breaks so workers can avoid the hottest part of the day. And there's one garden centre in the Netherlands, which during the heat wave was already taking what it called siesta breaks. And siestas are incredibly uh, sort of obvious as a point uh, to come up when we're talking about all of these uh, types of conditions because if you speak to many people sort of across Europe they will mention Spain and sort of siestas that are had during the middle of day where traditionally people have have taken naps or long breaks over lunch times. Um, is this like how how do these actually work and is what we think about sort of like the idea of siestas actually correct? Yeah, so this word siesta is actually quite divisive in Europe. Every time someone writes an article about the siesta, there's this big backlash because it's sort of been misunderstood. So if someone understands siesta to mean a midday nap, that's not actually happening that much in Spain anymore. Instead, what happens is the long lunch break. So this is actually called the jornada partida or the split working day. And it gives people a two or two and a half hour lunch break for people to kind of take a break from work. They can either have a long lunch, they can take a nap if they want. But interestingly, even as Spain gets hotter, so parts of Spain experienced their hottest May since records began this year, there's actually been this backlash against the split working day. Uh, the One of the former prime ministers has spoken out against it. I spoke to someone called Marta, who represents an organisation called Time Use Barcelona. And she's very anti the split working day, because basically, if you take a two hour lunch break, that pushes your work day end time back by several hours. So actually, it slashes the amount of time you end up spending at home. And you can actually spend kind of 14 hours either at or around work, especially if you live too far away from your workplace to go home and back again during your lunch break. This is a really crucial point as well. If you are going to extend your day like that and have a long lunch break, then um, there are issues around sort of like how much time you will spend commuting and how much time you'll spend away from your family and all of those kinds of things, which have led to siestas or uh, alternatives proving to be a little bit controversial. So at the moment with the discussions that countries are having about uh, how people work during the heat waves, are there other options being put forward? Yeah, so Marta and other people I spoke to for this story believe that work should be continuous. So it should be done in a lump instead of split into two separate shifts that eat into your personal time. So instead, to avoid the heat, she suggests starting work earlier. So think like 7am, and that would mean you finish earlier as well. I mean, in other parts of the world, there are even more extreme examples of totally changing your working patterns. So there's one farm in Western India. It's an onion farm that gets all its labourers to come in the middle of the night to harvest the onions. And they do that by torchlight because the farm said that they just it's just too hot in the middle of the day. They literally can't recruit any labourers to do the work because they're worried about the heat. Obviously, with the 
extreme changes in weather due to the climate emergency that we're seeing. These types of uh, hot, very hot summers, extreme summers are going to keep increasing as, as time goes ahead. Um, and this means that we probably need to rethink sort of different parts of our society and how we work, as well as sort of how that interacts with other parts of our lives. Like, for instance, how do you sync your working hours with school times? Uh, Does that mean that shops have to stay open later if people are working different hours? Or or do they have to open even earlier so people could go before work to the shop? And if places, countries do start introducing uh, longer lunch breaks, will people get paid for these? And how does that sort of like restructure the day? So I think that is this part of it a question around sort of like we need a bigger uh, societal change to how we work given the climate emergency as well yeah that was one of Marta's main kind of points when I, I told her there was this surge of interest from northern Europe in siestas or, or split working days she said that I mean if you take that two-hour lunch break it has major ramifications across different parts of society like what happens to your kids if your parents if their parents don't get home until 7 or 8 p.m are shopping malls going to stay open much later like they do in spain they stay open until 10 p.m in some parts so people can get their food and run errands after work but i think what's also interesting about this story is the tension it reveals between northern and southern europe as different countries try to adapt to climate change so northern europe is essentially a few steps behind spain they're sort of feeling heat the heat and seeing the appeal of molding their working day around the hottest part of it but for spain the country is a few steps ahead and it's kind of discovered that these measures are imperfect and you can't just introduce them without doing kind of the societal work in the background so it's just kind of a a small reminder about what a huge task it's going to be to rethink how we live relive our lives as the world gets hotter it's a really really fascinating story and i think one of many stories that are out there waiting to be told about the unexpected ways in which climate change is gonna as you say morgan reshape society like i don't think you know a few years ago anyone would have had harvesting onions by torchlight on their list of kind of effects of climate change but you know that's where we're at now um i saw a film recently like a sci-fi film um where it's kind of set in the near future and basically the entire day is flipped around so people get up when the sun goes down and then they kind of live through the night and then they go to bed when the sun comes up because it's too hot to to kind of live so we could be heading that way right yeah, I thought the India example was really striking, this image of like a whole field of people harvesting by torchlight. And and yeah, I mean, the idea of having to, even in less extreme examples, the idea of having to start work at 7am every day, that's going to be a big change for some people. I guess it also depends on what kind of work you're doing, because obviously for construction workers, it's imperative that they're not in the sun during the hottest part of the day. But if you're in an air-conditioned office, actually, you might want to you might want to spend the hottest part of the day in the office because otherwise you've got to spend your leisure time during the hottest part of the day and actually it'll be different for different people. Yeah, but on that point, I mean, I spoke to one researcher in Denmark who'd done a lot of research into this and although he was also looking at outdoor workers, he made a good point about air conditioning. It's like the way to deal with this, even if you're an office worker, is not to just rely on air conditioning, is not to bring this whole new element of society that increases our emissions use and rely on that. So he was kind of advocating that even office workers should be working much earlier, should kind of reduce their reliance on on air conditioning and I think that's an interesting point because a lot of people are like oh well we can just kind of air condition in our way or use fans to get our way to get ourselves out of this but actually maybe we should be a bit more creative in how we think about it. It's going to be a really really interesting challenge as time goes on. Thanks for that story Morgan that's really interesting. 
Our next story is about brain-computer interfaces and a big breakthrough that could bring the ability to control technology with your thoughts a step closer. Grace, what was the latest news on this one? So um, I'm sure some of our listeners have likely heard of brain-computer interfaces or BCIs uh, before, probably because of Elon Musk's infamous BCI company, Neuralink. But today we're actually going to be talking about a BCI company that is a little bit further ahead in this progress and is hoping to apply their device for a slightly less ethically dubious use. Uh, the company itself is called Synchron. And the big news is that on July 6th, so earlier, oh, sorry, last month, uh, the first patient in the US was implanted with their device at a hospital in New York. The patient was a male individual who had lost the ability to move and speak as a result of having ALS, which is a progressive disease that affects nerve cells. Uh, this was a big step forward for Synchron towards getting FDA approval, which is kind of their lofty goal, and actually getting their device on the market and to patients. The device itself, uh, what it does is it promises patients the ability to control the mouse of their personal computer and use it to click, which sounds like a very simple action that like you or I take for granted, this idea of you know, point and click. Um, but the device allows them to do it just by thinking. And the simple movement could allow them to, you know, text their doctor or shop online or, you know, send an email to a colleague, which is, like I said, everyday stuff that people with the use of their hands take for granted. But it could really be game changers for people who are living with some form of paralysis. There have been like versions of this kind of technology kind of floating around for a few years, particularly in animal studies. There's been studies where they've trained monkeys to control an image on a computer screen using their thoughts and things like that. So what's different about this technology and what makes it more likely to come to market than other similar things that, that, that might be trying to do the same thing? Yeah, you're right. You, you'd be forgiven for thinking that BCI is this kind of, you know, big dystopian revolution that's happening right now. Um, something from like a Black Mirror episode, which, you know, I can see the argument for that. But the BCI, BCI technology itself, like you said, isn't exactly new. I think the first one was made in like 1970, which, you know, that's ages ago. Um, but the problem is, is that it hasn't been, it hasn't entered mainstream use because it is, it has a number of downsides. So the, big, the biggest one, especially if you're going to want to implant it in people who have some form of paralysis, is that the implantation itself requires cutting open the scalp and drilling into the skull, which, I mean, I'm not sure I would want that done to me. <laughs> um, but the big difference with Synchron's device is that the surgeon actually doesn't have to cut open your brain, which means that it's far less invasive and therefore far less risky for patients, you know, in terms of, you know, getting an infection or the surgery going wrong or whatever. Um, the Synchron's device is called a Stentrode um, and it's about the length of a AAA battery. And what's different is that they implant it endovascularly. Sorry, that's a tough word to say. Endovascularly, which means that it's placed into a blood vessel in the brain in the region known as the motor cortex, which controls movement. Uh, the insertion itself involves cutting into the jugular vein in your neck and then the surgeon snakes a catheter in and then feeds the device all the way up into your brain, where once the catheter is removed, the device itself opens up like a flower and kind of nestles itself into the blood vessel's wall. Um, and the thing with this is, is that most neurosurgeons already know how to do this procedure. It's a fairly simple procedure that they would do on a regular basis. And what that means is that the procedure is much quicker to do. You know, the patient could be home probably the same day. Um, and it means that it's much more replicable and therefore much more scalable. I'm still not entirely sure I'd want that <laughs> want that done to me either, if I'm being honest. But so, so Synchron has, has now 
uh, implanted this device in the US. So what happens next? What's the next phase for taking this into wider usage? So yeah, this isn't the first time they've implanted the device itself. They actually had a trial in Australia, I think, last year in which they put the device into four patients but really they're trying to target the us in this case um so this is the reason why this is big news is that they've now started what's called the safety and feasibility part of their trial which basically means finding out if the procedure can be performed multiple times in multiple patients without serious side effects like that is the big thing that they have to find out first um this trial also aims to find out just how scalable the implant is you know whether it could be implanted into many more brains um and in doing so synchron plans to implant the device into 15 more patients before the end of 2022 and then after that um you know all going well the next step will be what is called a pivotal trial where the company will have to show that the technology actually significantly improves aspects of its users lives and what exactly that means they're still finding out it's still something that i think a lot of researchers are trying to figure out because this has never been done before. Um, so part of what Synchron is doing is having long, lengthy discussions with patients themselves, finding out what they would hope to gain with a device like this. You know, uh, you could argue that watching, being able to watch Netflix by themselves could measurably improve their day-to-day lives. But will that be enough for the FDA to, you know, approve that and give them the licensing? It's not quite clear. So maybe it will have to be something that actually, you know, has, it's, it's, it's a thing called outcome measure, and again, that's still very much up in the air and something that Synchron is trying to figure out. Um, but providing that the trial goes to plan, the company will then have to apply for FDA approval and they'll basically have to make a case for the device to be made available under Medicare, which is their big goal. Um, Medicare is the government provided health insurance program in the US. And Medicare is really, you know, their end point because the whole point of Synchron is that they want to make this device available to a ton of people and scalable. And a big way of doing that um, will be going through health insurance. Um, we actually don't know yet just how much the device costs. Um, the CEO told me that it costs in the order of magnitude of a car, but he wouldn't tell me what kind of car. So <laughs> that's pretty obscure still. <laughs> it's quite a, quite a broad window of things <laughs> yes. there, right? Um, so... Obviously, the hardware is kind of coming along and the trials are going and stuff like that. But it feels like there's a question about the ethics of all of this. If you are implanting devices into people's brains that then collect data, what do you do with that information? What happens when this starts to go from being like a necessary medical thing for people with certain conditions to something that maybe you might get for, you know, leisure or, you know, because you want to kind of be, you know, a augmented human or whatever that what's that ethical conversation been like so far? Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of people get a little bit wary when we talk about this, and I think with good reason. Like like I said, I think it has been the black mirror effect, you know. Um, will it be a scenario where we can manipulate our me- memories or something like that? Um, but the, the bioethics community and the people who are creating these devices are very engaged of the ethics. Um, but the, the big thing that's happening now and why 
a lot of the conversation is kind of ramped up is because, you know, before the BCIs aren't new, but all of the research was happening in research labs at universities where they have very strict ethical guidelines are constantly being monitored. Um, but the difference now is that the, the, the technology is looking like it's going to enter the commercial space pretty soon. And that opens up a whole other raft of ethical and legal and social risks. You know, the device's key ingredient is neural data, uh, which happens to be an extremely sensitive bounty. So there are a ton of questions that could come up mm. like, you know, how long should that data be stored? What should it be used for outside of the device's immediate application? You know, could the company take that data and sell it to a third party or whatever? Um, who gets to own that data? You know, is it the patient or is it the company? And who gets to do what they want with it? Um, and then obviously, you know, you, when you're th- this is a company at the end of the day. And there was a big story recently um, from a different publication about um, a bionic eye. Um, the, the company ran out of money and all of the patients were kind of just, you know, left in the lurch. They weren't sure what to do next. So people are, are worried that this could happen again. You know, say Synchron crashes and goes under and there's maybe you know 2,000 patients who have this device in their brain you know uh will they get to keep the device you know what if the device needs to be updated who's going to do that and who's going to pay for it or if the patients want to get it taken out will the company pay for the removal um but from speaking to a bioethicist on this um they kind of emphasize that you know just because there are all these ethical issues. It doesn't mean that we should stop developing this kind of technology. It just means that the companies need to be really addressing these questions head on as they progress. And the conversation needs to continue amongst, you know, bioethicists and legal scholars and all those kind of people. Yeah, we've all been in a situation where we've had like a piece of like tech that we've had for ages and the company stops doing software updates and the thing is essentially useless. It's going to be amplified when it's literally implanted in your brain. You mentioned earlier, Grace, that like versions of the technology have kind of been played around with since the 70s. But things have really, I think, I get the sense that things have really kicked up a gear in the last maybe five years with some big investments from the likes of Elon Musk, as you mentioned. How has this kind of changed the space? You know, what, what effect is this having on, on the work and the research? Um, I think for one thing, there are a lot more eyes on it than there ever was before, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and to find out whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. I chatted with Ian Burkhart, who um, helps lead the BCI Pioneers Coalition, which is a collective of uh, BCI users who share their experiences. Um, And Ian actually was fitted with a BCI a few years after a spinal cord injury left him paralyzed from the chest down. Because I spoke to him because I wanted to get a sense of how, you know, this kind of mounting competitiveness within the VCI space was being received amongst people within the disability community. Because, you know, at the end of the day, these devices are largely intended for them. Um, he said that the rush to market has meant that things are definitely getting done faster, which is, you know, a good thing. Um, and big names like Elon Musk has definitely drawn attention to the field. But you know, he pointed out on the flip side that this speed does bring some concerns. You know, you want to make sure that these things are being done right. And you want to have a bit of good faith in these companies that they're doing things for the right reasons. Um, And also a big worry is, you know, it is this kind of mounting race and it's, you know, exciting and every new headline about how Elon Musk isn't doing as well or he is doing as well or whatever. um, It's a big worry within the disabled community is that what if all of this actually goes nowhere and it all just turns out to be a big heap of hype and they're left without these devices that could have potentially changed their lives? 
Yeah, I think that question of scalability is a really interesting one because it's one thing to have a system where you can implant this thing really easily and at scale, but I'm assuming that like the device will need to be tailored to individuals or the software that is running will need to be tailored to individuals to you know account for their specific you know neural impairments or whatever. So it's hard to see how that's going to scale up. What do you think a kind of realistic timeline for this device coming to market is? Is it something that you know, consumers will ever use or do you think it's going to remain a medical device for people who can't access technology in other ways because they're paralysed or, you know, they have another brain injury or something like that? On when it's going to come to market, I think that is still probably up in the air. Um, I think it's going to depend a lot on how Syncon's trials go. Um, But I asked the CEO and co-founder, Tom Moxley, uh, you know, what his kind of dream is for the company. And he said, it will be a million implants a year, which is how many stents and cardiac pacemakers are implanted annually, which take the same kind of um, surgical approach. Um, he said that goal is about 15 to 20 years away. Um, in terms of whether consumers will use it as opposed to you know patients who have some form of paralysis, um, he seems to think that the device could be usable by anybody who has any kind of motor control impairment. So, you know, stroke or ALS or... MS or muscular dystrophy or nerve disease or head injury and so on. Um, and he didn't seem to, he, seem, he seems to take a kind of sky's the limit approach. Um, what that actually means in practice, I'm not sure. Um, but he said he thinks 100 million people worldwide could benefit from a BCI. So who knows, maybe it could be me or you that has a brain implant in a couple of de- deca- decades. Yeah, quite possibly. And one thing we haven't really talked about is the use cases beyond the medical use case, I suppose. So like Elon Musk talks about the resolution of the human brain being kind of limited by the fact that we can only interact with the world through like our 10 digits. And that's one of the reasons he funded Neuralink was to kind of increase that bandwidth for processing information, which kind of opens up a whole can of worms around the ethics of plugging something into your brain. But I don't know, Grace, what do you think? Would you would you go for a brain implant if it was going to enhance your ability to process information or you know make you like super intelligent or whatever even more super intelligent um i honestly think yes but not elon musk's one <laughs> someone else did it <laughs> yeah that's a fair quite it's a fair point um we'd be really interested to hear what listeners think as well so do write to us podcast at wired.co.uk let us know your thoughts on the siesta story are you taking an afternoon nap to avoid the heat and on brain implants would you get a bci and would you make sure it was one that was not made by elon musk do you let us know podcast at wired.co.uk and on that note uh that's probably about all time all the time we've got this week so we will see you next time goodbye bye, bye. bye.